It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Listening to Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I'm your host, Johnny Oddball, filling in for PJ Frightful, who's digging up bodies at Pleasant View Cemetery. <gasps> Wait, no, I didn't say. You heard that wrong. He's uh, on a cruise to South America. So, uh, like I said, I'm Johnny Oddball. You might know my dad, he fixes computers. Uh, this is my first time hosting a podcast. Can you tell? I like this studio in the basement of the old radio station, though. I spend most of my time in the basement of my dad's shop. He tells people I work down there, that I'm a good helper, but really he makes me stay down there so I don't disturb the customers. Uh, I never meant to bother anybody. I just think it's weird that we eat certain animals and certain animals we don't. I told this lady and her daughter what things I would like to eat if it was acceptable, and they didn't like that at all, no. And then my dad got really mad. So, uh... Uh, what, what do I do? Sorry, I, I've never hosted a podcast before. BJ Frightful said it was really easy, but he left me a note with some tips. Let me see. He says I should welcome the listeners and introduce myself. I did that. Tell a scary story about Thanksgiving. Okay. Remember to just be yourself, and for the love of God, Johnny, don't tell them I'm stealing bodies from the graveyard. South America, he's on a cruise, like I said. Oh boy, this reminds me of a segue about a Thanksgiving story. Uh, this guy I know was a real dick to this witch or whatever, and she cursed him by turning him into a turkey. The guy was carved up by his own family for Thanksgiving. His spirit lived on to experience the horror of being eaten by his family. It was really scary and gross and stuff. Da da da! The end. Uh, ooh, scary story, huh? Are your arms covered in goosebumps? Okay, so that's uh, time for the main topic. I'm Johnny Oddball. Please shop at my dad's store. Is the power strip on? That's a, that's what it's called for all your electronics repair needs. Welcome back to Midnight, the podcasting hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and my returning guest this time is the delectable Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Hello, Martin. Hello there, hello there, hello there. Thanks for having me back in the House of Midnight. Oh, yes, it is great to have you back. And uh, But now I, I confess... This is a little bit sad talking to you over Skype after the last time we last time we talked was right in person. I know it was absolutely fantastic to meet you and Dr. Ange, but you know, we have met in person, so I feel even better vibes than previously. 
I know, I know. And I, I feel like I am uh, in some way superior to most of the fire and water community in that I have met you and they haven't. So. God bless you, girl. <laughs> uh, the last time you were on the show was the Easter episode when we covered Hopping Down the Bunny Trail, which was a very popular story and episode. Now you are back for another holiday episode here in the United States, or the colonies, as you would call them. Uh, <laughs> We're coming up on Thanksgiving. Whatever meaning Thanksgiving was supposed to have centuries ago, today it's mostly all about food. And with that in mind, Martin and I have selected a short story that is all about food and eating in a gross and horrific manner. Uh, We are covering The Gourmet, which is written by Steve Skates and illustrated by the late, great Bernie Wrightson. Uh, The story originally appeared in the first issue of Plop in 1973. Now, I was first introduced to this story in the Masterwork series of great comic book artists spotlighting Bernie Wrightson. Um, I had never read an issue of Plop until very, very recently, as in 20 minutes ago. (laughs) Thanks for that one. But it was described on the cover as the magazine of weird humor, and I definitely got that from reading that first issue. But Martin, can you tell us and the listeners a little bit more about what Plop was or the types of stories it usually published? Yes, Plop basically had similar stories to what you would find in Joe Orlando's House of Mystery, House of Secrets, unexpected type stories, but with a slightly more comedic bent. There might be a funnier twist or the art might be a little more cartoony or just zanier. It'll be be a little bit quirkier, Mm -hmm. but... As the gourmet, I think, illustrates pretty well, they weren't always necessarily funny laugh out loud. Because the gourmets, well, when we've had the crazy, we can talk about it some more. But, but, I mean, as well as the strips, there were generally sort of a lot of gag panels mm-hmm. by various, various cartoons, which was similar to the things that you'd find in the Kane's mailroom in House of Mystery, except they generally weren't all by Sergio Aragonés. He had a background, and the panels were printed against the surprint of Aragonés's sort of, well like a vision of hell, really, little tiny figures in the background. <laughs> and you'd have an introduction page with the hosts who were Cain and Abel and Eve, their mother, who was pretty much often generally referred to as the old witch. I don't know why, because if it's Cain and Abel and Eve, you'd think she's their mother. And there'd be an outro page as well. There'd generally be a text page of humorous letters. But, I mean, the meat of the issue would be sort of pretty much about, about three stories of varying length showcasing fantastic art and wonderful scripts yeah and yeah and as you mentioned like uh aragonis has a story in the first issue there's one by um frank robbins there's one by uh is it alberto alcala no what's his first alfredo alfredo alcala thank you couldn't think of the first name i just remember the signature a alcala um, and I, I, I really like his story. And the, for those of you, it's a very short story of a kind of spectral ghost figure, cr- like raising up out of a graveyard, visiting a nearby house where an old man is just watching the TV. And the ghost just kind of sits in his chair, almost like it's possessing him, but like watching the TV with him. And we don't know what he's watching. And then later the ghost just kind of gets up and returns to the graveyard. And we hear him reporting back the score of the Yankees game. He's like, Yanks won eight to five. And the other dead bodies and the graves are like, yeah, awesome, yeah. One guy's like, oh, nuts. So it was that type of, you know, stories with horrific or supernatural themes or or settings or atmosphere, but oftentimes with a kind of comedic bent or punchline. It was very cute, that, that particular story. But, but re- I mean, reading, reading up on the background, it seems basically that it did, it did all spin out of the poster plague. 
mm-hmm. as discussed by yourself and Rob Kelly on the recent Treasury cast on the House of Mystery Limited Collector's Edition, or Treasury Edition, is that the Marvel version? Anyway, but uh, it seems that Sergio Aragon has been sort of nagging and nagging sort of Joel Ander for years to let him put some bits of humour in, and the one-page strips that they did put in went down well, sorry, the Kane's mail room, and then Steve Skates had, it seems, sort of, had this story in the poster plague, which he'd, you know, which he had been sort of, which had rejected by Creepy Comics, sorry, by Warren Comics, who did Creepy and Eerie, and Joe Orlando published it. The response was really good, and then Joe Orlando decided to ask Carmine Infantino if they could maybe do a regular series. And on came Plop, although that wasn't the original suggested title. <laughs> do you know what the title was? Because within the issue, they spent a lot of time talking about what Plop is and really emphasize that word in a lot of kind of double entendre and like wordplay where it basically sounds like they're just using it as an excuse to as a surrogate for an expletive or a curse word that they couldn't get away with saying they, they do yeah they, they drop it in as sound effects throughout the issue even when plop isn't particularly the most appropriate mm-hmm. sound effect but it seemed that the, the original suggested titles were black humor and weird humor or zany and on some of the little quotes in the strips it actually has started with za so huh. it looks like it was going to be zany until pretty late in the day, but finally it, it sounds like, well, it seems that they were having dinner, Sergio Aragorn as Joe Orlando, I think Steve Skates, with, with Carmine Infantino, and t- just, you know, sort of uh, trying to get a title, and he remembered the poster play sound effect, Clop. <laughs> he misremembered it as Plop, and that's what it finally became, complete with an old Mad Magazine-type font with a typeface. I wonder if uh, Bob Haney filed an injunction against the name Zany. It's like you can, oh, Danny Haney. Yeah, it's like you can't use that title unless I write every script for it. You need my permission. <laughs> Absolutely, although it seems he did contribute to Plop. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, uh, that is that's some context for the type of story that we're going to get. Although, I mean, uh, honestly, I, I think this story, as we will see, could have gone really in any of the many horror magazines that were that were coming out by, that Joe Orlando was editing around this time. So... Uh, We will discuss the gourmet in a moment, but right now we're going to take a short promo break. Please join us on the other side and bring your appetites, because it's time to eat. Welcome to the world of tomorrow! The Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series, five years later, the reboot, the three-boot, the retro-boot, the animated series... We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. Why do you always have to say it that way? Haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship? The Gourmet is written by Steve Skeets and illustrated by Bernie Wrightson. The story is introduced by Kane, caretaker of the House of Mystery, who's carrying a serving plate. Lifting the cover as he appears from beneath his hated brother Abel, looking extremely trepidatious as he realises he's about to be fed to someone or thing. But Abel's safe for now, as Kane begins his freaky fable, the story of a man who loves his food. Vernon Glute would today be politely termed obese, but in 1973, Kane has no qualms about calling him fat, gross, a slob. Vernon Glute would simply describe himself as a gourmet, 
a person of exquisite taste who spends all his time and money dining in the best places on the most luxurious of meals. There is one thing Vernon Clute adores above all else, frog's legs piled high upon a plate, and not just one serving, but two or three or four. He devours the delicacy with relish, and he likes it best fresh, very fresh. His butler and cook, Holmesley, is required not simply to accept the French fare from the supplier, but to take delivery of them live and slaughter them in Vernon Glute's kitchen as his greedy, ungrateful, bad-tempered employer barks out for more. On this fateful day, Vernon Glute bites into the latest helping and yells at his hard-pressed employee, Holmesley, these are undercooked! The butler says he'll take them back to the kitchen and grill them some more. But that's not enough for the gluttonous ghoul. No, you fool. I want a new batch. I want them fresh, fresh. Vernon Glute shouts, tossing the dish behind him, rejected lizard-like limbs scattering to the floor. As Holmesley skitters back to the kitchen, Vernon Glute waits and waits. What's taking his idiot manservant so long? He decides to check out what the deuce is happening in that kitchen. Not a man for walking, Vernon Glute slowly separates himself from his chair, and as he rises, he hears, coming from the kitchen, the voice of Holmesley. No, stay away. Please, I didn't mean to. I was only doing as I was told, I... The alarmed cries trail off, as another sound overwhelms the terrified tones of Holmesley. And then... A scream to curdle even the congealed blood of Vernon Glute. Yeah! The dismayed diner sits down once more, beads of stinking sweat pouring down his frightened face as he wonders what's happened to Holmesley. Little by little, he realises what that odd scree, scree, scree reminds him of spinning wheels. Louder and louder grow the sounds, coming not just from the kitchen, but from behind every door, each sumptuous curtain, even the statue of a copulating couple perched by the picture window. There's nowhere for Vernon Glute to go, nowhere to escape what's coming. The scree noise begins to alternate with thuds. Something is banging against the doors. They want in. Millions of tiny impacts are causing the wood to splinter as Vernon Glute looks on, his heart threatening to burst with fear. The latches loosen, the doors buckle inward. And finally, Vernon Glute sees what's coming for him. It's an unimaginable sight. Screeching, croaking, crying for vengeance. Millions of frogs, but not bounding, leaping amphibians. No, these frogs are on itty-bitty wheeled carts, separated from their real legs by the appalling appetite of vile Vernon Glute. They're using their remaining upper limbs to move forward, to edge towards the man who has tormented their species for so many years. A few of the frogs are stew trolleys, choosing to use miniature crutches to skip around the floor. It all sounds silly, but Vernon Glute isn't giggling. He's failing to fight off the horrible horde of grinning green creatures climbing up his body. He's yelling in abject horror at a sight before him. The throng of fearsome frogs threatening... What? Ah! That scream is the last anyone ever hears of Vernon Glute. But stories of the greedy, self-styled gore may become legend. Years later, in a poor part of town, the customers of a downtrodden diner can't concentrate on their meagre meals for the flock of flies that fights for their food. The short-order cook calls in the person known only as the fly-catcher. 
The chef's sharp whistle is followed by another noise. Scree, scree, scree. But it's not a plague of vengeful frogs. It's Vernon Glute. Yes, the army of amphibians attacked him, but they left him alive. These frogs had no back legs, but they weren't short on irony. Vernon Glute is a shadow of the man he was. He's still a portly person. His chin count will never fall below 15, but he's light in the leg department. He's on his own trolley, and little by little he emerges from a back room into the dining area. Vernon Glute looks at the flies, narrows his eyes, and <laughs> out of his fat, fetid lips comes a tongue. A long tongue fit for catching flies, a tongue any frog would be envious of. One by one he pins the insects to his blood-red organ. One by one his fleshy extension pulls them into his greedy gob. At the end of this bizarre scene, as grossed-out folk hurry from the rundown restaurant, Vernon Glute gracefully wipes his mouth like the gentleman he is. In the closing words of Cain, Hornsley had been the lucky one. They had simply killed him. But Vernon Glute's fate was far worse especially for a man who had once savoured only the best of foods, to be transformed into this strange, half-human creature, to dine for the rest of his life on the most common of insects. And that was the gourmet. What did you think about this one? Well, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I know you said you you read well, you read the whole issue for the first time twenty minutes ago, but obviously you read this story quite a while back. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm actually old enough that I, I bought it, the comic in the UK. Oh, probably a couple of months after it came out in 1973. In the dark, what I remember it was one one dark Saturday afternoon in 1973. You know, I was about eight. I, I was just reading it at my grandparents' house while the family's running around having tea. And by the time I well making tea. And by the time I read the story, I just didn't have an appetite. I just felt really grossed out in a good, <laughs> in a good way, because it was, you know, on the cover on behind the fantastic Basil Wolverton image of Arms Armstrong, it says, you know, the new magazine of weird humour. And I'd been regaled with something from a Hammer horror film, pretty much. It was a, you know, a dark morality tale, you know, enough to give anyone an edible complex. And... That, uh, yeah, that was going to be one of my first questions. Is why did this story show up in Plop and not one of the other magazine, one of the other books? Like, this could have been House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Witching Hour, something. Exactly, because, I mean, as you say, it could, have, it could have fitted into any of those. And, and it was one of the places that's been reprinted. It was a, a Return to the House of Mystery mm-hmm. comics. Just, you know, putting this as pretty much a straight story there. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. You have the black humour of the amputee frogs and the surreal sight of them on carts and crutches, but the the imagery is just fantastic. Yeah, no, it is. And again, Bernie Wrightson, who I love, I'm going to do a special on him just covering a bunch of his stories in the near future. Um, and really, I think, I mean, his his work on every, every panel, every page is great, but it's really the penultimate page, which is just the splash of Vernon Glute and what a great name for the character, especially a character who's designed to be obese and, and a glutton. Um, he's backed up against the wall as all of the frogs are descending on him. Frogs with crutches, frogs on these wheeled carts, all the frogs without their legs just descending on him. That splash page. I mean, I, I feel like I've seen that for years. Um, exactly. It's, it's stayed with me completely over, like, you know, sort of what, 
well, more 40 years ago or something like that. It's yeah. And I mean, it's it is the cover of the comic where I first read this story. Uh, like yeah. I said at the top, was the masterwork series of great comic book artists. Okay. It was a combination of DC and Seagate Publishing, but uh, they did a couple of them. There was one on Neil Adams, I think. Uh, maybe one on Fr- I I don't remember who else. It was either Frazetta or Barry Windsor Smith, but I, it might have been Frazetta. But yeah, they did a Bernie Wrightson one, and this that image is the cover, and the story is in it, but it's the issue of all the frogs. But even then, when I saw that, I felt like, I was like, oh yeah, I've seen that page before, so it must have been just, you know, looking up classic Bernie Wrightson images or something. I, this one always popped up, um, and it's it's why the story's been repeated, yeah, or reprinted. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's stunning. Because as you say, you've got the frogs in the foreground, the gourmet in the centre, mm-hmm. and the way the, the walls and ceilings seem to frame him, it, it reminded me of you know that moment in have you seen, you've probably seen Vertigo a million times. Oh sure. Yeah. But where where the cameraman just that that trick with the camera where they're pushing the camera forward while pulling the image. The yes. Something something Bob Kelly could explain it better. Than that. Yeah, yeah. But it reminded me that is if you're zooming in and zooming out at the same time. Yeah. Also, what I mean, like you've, obviously you've got the screams going right across. You've got the croaks. But if you look if you look at the way that's all. Vernon's he's framed with the, with the doorway with the drapes behind him but that, it's as if it's a coffin as if he's falling into a coffin to me exactly and yeah. the the window frames and the way the light cascades kind of gives this crossbar thing. Yeah. It, it also adds the sense of him being caged so yeah you get like the, the coffin idea the cage like he's trapped and just surrounded as all these frogs just yeah. slowly like climb up him and surround him it's it's oh it's such a gruesome visceral image and it just sells it but then the the last part of the story, the last page, I think, like you could have ended the story with this, with that page. Yeah. And then they don't. They continue it for one more page, which makes it weirder and grosser. And it, it's like it doesn't end on this. I, I think this maybe this is why it's in plop and not something because it doesn't end on the scary, gross moment. It ends on this really, oh, like kind of creepy, like give you the shivers. Like, what did they do to this guy? Because, like you said, they they transformed him. He's he's first of all, they took his legs, so he comes out on this wheeled cart. He can't speak, but he's like not he's not human. It's not like they just cut his legs off because he clearly he eats flies with this tongue that shoots out like a frog's tongue. But he still dabs the corners of his yeah yeah, and he dabs the corners of his mouth with a napkin or with a kerchief or something like he's like that was delicious. Like he's still a gentleman, and it's whoa, what the. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the one misstep. I mean, Steve Skates. I think he deserves a huge amount of praise because the script, you know, pretty much drips with tension. You can mm-hmm. quite easily, when the frog reveal comes, give it, you know, go all boah ha ha. But he keeps a straight face because there is more to come. But then on the next page, I just wish he hadn't said had the guy, the guy, the guy in the diner saying, you know, we better call him the flycatcher. Yeah, because yeah, you know what's coming then. Yeah, yeah. But it's still, it's still absolutely, absolutely wonderful. And I mean, and again, looking at the Bernie Wrights, not I mean, normally. Uh, you might you might get Kane at the beginning, Kane at the end, but he, every couple of panels he's, he's got Kane in there, coloured masterfully by whoever the unknown colourist was, possibly Tatiana Wood, I don't know. But I mean, the little the little figures of Kane, he's got one where Kane's you know like frog ready to leap. Yes, I, I had that in my notes too. It's on the top of page three, the upper left. He's crouched down with his knees up. It's like a Spider-Man pose or something or like something. But uh, but yeah, with his knees up there by his head, it looks like he's in a frog position. Yeah. Uh, what did you think? Was I reading too much into that statue? You get a good view on page three. Oh again. yeah, yeah. The statue. It's gosh, that looks like something. 
Yeah, I mean, because he he puts in the in the in the issue about four times from different angles, mm. and it's like there's there's no way they're not about to have or having sex. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, there's a couple statues. Even like later, there's he's got some graphic statuary in there. <laughs> yeah, it's just, but the, the whole, I mean, the whole thing is just it is just so sinewy, organic, all the artwork. Well, that's right, isn't it? It's just absolutely mm. gorgeous. And and back to Kane, the image <laughs> on page four. It looks like the bottom half of him is turning into a tail, like a tadpole or something. Absolutely, you know, it, it is. It's like it's just it's just all you know coming out speaking to the theme of the story of the strange transformations and <laughs> creepy creatures. Hmm. I, what I find also interesting is that on the final page, when you have the tongue coming out, Bernie Wrightson doesn't actually give us the full sound effect, so it's nothing like a swift. But when I was doing the crazy, I just went like Spider Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were it like a gnu or something? Oh, I no. You know what it is? That we're seeing it through the window that says diner. Oh, it's yes, the sleazy. It's the sleazy diner. Yes, it's, sleazy we're just diner. seeing it. Through, yeah, that's that's part of the the window pane. Oh, thank you, Ryan. So yes, they also like it in the in the final in the final panel when Kane's got his final words. He's he's having a little barbecue. Yes. Yeah, the frogs are eating. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I. I can't say enough about Bernie Wrightson's art like throughout his career, which I'm going to continue to praise again and again on this show. But uh, yeah, Skates' story too. It's it's a great little setup. And I, th- I think if it, had, if it had been five pages and ended with that, that horrific splash page, it would have been perfect. And then they give us the six page, which just is, I mean, it doesn't ruin the story. It doesn't let it down. It just takes it in a weird new direction. Like it, it went from being this horrible you know, kind of EC House of Mystery ty- typical type of story for this era, yeah. and brings it into this weird realm of body horror, like a David Cronenberg story or the movie or something. Yes, it is just wonderful. I, think, I just feel sorry for the butler. <laughs> yeah. Blameless. Yeah, yeah. And they say he got off lucky. Yeah. Oh, in a sense, I suppose he did. But as I say, Vernon just looked a lot, a lot more at peace than he did in two of the rest of the stories. He's found a taste for flies. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean that's that's it. Not a whole lot to dissect. It's just it's a really fun story about uh, a guy. Just I mean, it, Steve Skates had was typically tried to infuse like a message. So I think maybe I don't know the the sense that the, the animals are are sort of getting their revenge on this guy. Um, yeah, like like I mean, wasn't that around the time you had films like Night of the Leapers with the terrifying mm. bunny rabbits, the giant bunnies and things? Yeah. In the sense that, like the these yeah. <laughs> these animals being treated not just for food and sustenance, but as a special, as a delicacy, with a sort of brutal way of killing them and delegging mm. them and everything like that, for to service a man who is just kind of a pompous kind of glutton who, who thinks he, he thinks himself above the status of like this nature thing that, that he's so high and and he's not only he's not just killed for his crime he's brought low he's reduced to this subhuman thing this kind of animal so i'm sure that was that was part of skates's message and his agenda for the story yeah um, well i wonder whether skates was a vegetarian perhaps i don't know uh, he seems like one of Rob Kelly's people, so that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> well, he's a good man, then, yeah. But uh, it's also quite funny that, obviously, for, for the story to work, you have to have sort of Vernon Glute not have a taste for the front frog's legs for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I, I've never tried frog's legs, so I'm not sure if there's a disparity in taste. I haven't. I've, I've sampled a few weird things, but I've never tried frog's yeah. legs. So. No, if you ever go to France, just don't try chitterlings. Okay. <laughs> I remember that one. 
No, honestly, yeah, but uh, pig's anuses. Yeah. Served, served, served to us in a crepe by a waiter who said, you'll enjoy those. He didn't tell us what they were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I yeah. like the story. I, I mean, it seems this one from that first issue of Plop, this one definitely stands out. I mean, the the art in it is less cartoonish than any of the others by a wide margin. I, I guess the, the Frank Robbins is is very. It, does he do the Kongzilla one, or which one is the? No, Frank, Frank Robbins writes it. It's, it's drawn by George Evans. It's that... very very. It's very Hollywood, mad, mad sort of Smile and Melvin sort of Mad Magazine early style, isn't it? That's right. Robbins wrote it. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, but it's it's. Yeah, so this the art does not really look like anything else in that magazine. I I think it doesn't have a punchline or a silliness. It's just kind of like this creepy, like whoa. But ah, it's uh, like definitely. I mean, if I, I would have come back for more just from this one, so definitely. And I I did. I and I cannot wait to hear what the Fire Network pals think of this. People who are reading it for the first time, I, I'm sure it will whet their appetites for more good stories of this kind. <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's a shame that. It's, as plot went on, it became a little, a little less weird. I mean, Basil Wolverton's covers, trademark covers, they were they were going well. They were there for most of the run, but after that, the covers were pretty much weak gag strips, and it became a little less dark. Mm. But the early issues, I mean, just fantastic, really, really good stuff. Absolutely, I might I might have to cover another one of those soon. But... Oh, definitely. I mean, in, in DC's faith, that they actually didn't have any adverts in the first few issues as well, but sadly, sales weren't quite much allowed to have advertising after a while. Right. Well, Martin, uh, I, I don't think I have any other notes for this story. Do you? I think we pretty much covered it. So if I think of anything else, I'll pop into the comments. But uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's it's a quick six-pager. Uh, and I think we've covered all, all the main... In fact, no. If we covered everything, there'd be nothing for people to talk about. So <laughs> let's be surprised by what comes up. There you go. So listeners, leave us a leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of the story. Did it spoil your appetites? Did it ruin Thanksgiving for you? Uh, have you tried frog's legs? Maybe somebody, maybe some of them have. Um, it's the weirdest frog story since Paul McCartney's frog chorus. <laughs> scary. Yeah. Uh, did you read this like Martin when you were a kid, and did it like totally freak you out? Did he, were you not expecting this type of story when you first opened Plop? So, uh, but uh, yeah, thank you once again, Martin. Thank you for being a guest on the show. You are always welcome. I have a blast talking to you. Where else can people hear from you or read your stuff online or in the realm of the blogosphere? Oh, well, I'm always, always generally around in a lot of the a lot of the comment sections on the Fire and Water Network, probably on podcasts here and there where I'm looking. And I've got a blog, Too Dangerous for a Girl, which just chats about the week's comics, a few of them here and there. So do pop by if you get a chance. Will do, will do. Thank you once again for being my guest. Folks, don't go away because I'll have your listener feedback from the last episode coming up after this promo break. Stick around. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukonori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... 
The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. Okay, we received some very nice feedback for episode 16, which came out back on Halloween, and featured me and Rob Kelly covering the story The Curse of Ozzie and Mary. Over on Facebook, Clinton Robison said, Is it bad that I kept expecting The Curse of Ozzie and Harriet? You know, honestly, I am surprised that Rob and I never goofed and said that ourselves, really. Uh, We got some more comments on the Fire and Water Network website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Chris Franklin, my co-host on Batman Nightcast, as well as one of the hosts of the Supermates podcast and Superman Movie Minute. Chris said, that opening story, words fail me. Bravo. On a much lighter note, Donnie and Marie are strangely relevant for me this Halloween season. On last week's episode of The Middle, Axel and his girlfriend dress as Donnie and Marie, mistakenly thinking they were a couple, not siblings. And now this. But yeah, this doesn't live up to the cover, but it's an interesting twist ending, if nothing else. Great, great Halloween episode, Ryan. Uh, Rob Kelly, the other host of Superman Movie Minute, as well as the host of the Film and Water podcast, Pod Dylan, and just so, so much more here on the Fire and Water Network. Rob didn't have a lot more to add to the Curse of Ozzy and Mary story, but he did call the intro story that I wrote a doozy. You know, thank you very much, Rob and Chris, everyone else who compliments the short story that I wrote for the beginning of that episode. Thank you. I'm happy to hear that. And Rob continues, while I'm sorry the show is being moved back to a quarterly schedule, I'm telling myself it's sort of emulating DC's dollar comic format with multiple segments. That lessens some of the hurt. That's kind of the idea, honestly. Uh, Darren Sutherland from the RAD Network, including Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds podcasts, said... I was hoping for a new episode of the show for Halloween, and I smiled in delight when I saw it posted today. It was a treat to hear Rob back on the show and to hear his history with that comic. As he said, there was no way it could live up to his expectations, but it still sounded like a great story. Take care until next time. Thank you very much, Darren. Ted Kilvington said, Another spooky delight, and this was easily the best PJ Frightful segment to date. The worst was the one with the scary guy getting in the truck, and when he started talking, it was the introduction to the show. Gotta go back. I don't remember which one you're talking about. Eh. I totally agree with you that too many DC stories have been spoiled by the covers. On my own show, I've taken to describing the covers after the story synopsis. So, on the Thanksgiving show, will you be covering the Eli Roth film of the same name? Thanksgiving. Uh, I love that little short uh, preview thing on the Grindhouse features. That was that was fun. I, I totally, yeah, I, I'm glad that it's not a full movie because that would never work. But as a trailer, wonderful. Uh, Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom and my co-host on the Night Forced episodes, which will wrap up next year sometime, said, Great intro story, Ryan. Fabulous. These are getting too scary almost. Brilliant. One thing, though, if you were talking about Kylo Ren, he's not Darth Vader's son. Maybe fact-check your details with the guy who does the Give Me Those Star Wars show next time. Oh, yes. And this led to a short conversation between Paul and Martin Gray over whether or not I was serious. Bottom line, yes, that line was meant to suggest that the character in the story didn't know Kylo Ren's exact connection to Darth Vader and was just going on an assumption. And when you assume, you make an ass out of Paul. 
Martin Gray, who runs the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, left his own comments saying, That was the best PJ Frightful story yet. So bleak, and the tension built beautifully. You're especially good with the slow drip of adjectives. I bet I couldn't write anything near as good because my habit as a sub-editor, which is a jumped-up copy editor for the U.S. chums, means I'm inclined to take away the adjectives unless I'm working on a color piece. It'd be fun to have the free pass to go for the more descriptive and decorative. As for the comic strip, how great to have another entry from the Bunny Boys. <laughs> I'm sure that's what they like being called after the, uh, the hopping down the bunny trail. I can't see Ozzy and without defaulting to Harriet. Ah, another one. Despite having no real idea who Ozzy and Harriet were. Anyway, a fun story. Inconsequential, but amusingly odd. Mind, where was the curse? Uh, assuming it was just part of the end that was thrown in. I'm delighted you've announced a quarterly schedule, because that's a schedule. No one would begrudge you giving the show up, what with life being so busy. Midnight is an absolute Fire and Water Network favorite, and I'm delighted we're getting bigger chunks. The promise of you and Angela doing Andrew Bennett has me salivating. Well, again, thank you for the compliments on the intro, and I hope you like the new format when it comes out next year. Santaran, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Santaran said, The premise of the comic itself reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode, The Masks. Uh, then Santaran said, Please don't take this as a negative criticism in any way, but I think I would have liked the story to have ended with him having woken up from a coma and wondering if it had been a hallucination from the fall until he got home and sees his door, and with the kid begging to be killed because he won't stop until I pay, but of course no one else can see anything. I think having a bit of slight ambiguity to the ending would have been nice, but that's just me, and I'm not trying to take anything away from it. Well, that's fine. I don't take that as a criticism. You're just voicing the kind of story that you would have liked to hear, but I obviously took it in a different direction. So. Uh, Brian Linton said, I agree with a general sentiment that the story did not live up to the cover, but I think it could have with just a few tweaks. First, spread Mary's melting face out over a few more panels. Okay, that sounds more disgusting than I'd intended. Second, make the rat faces less cute and more horrific. Third, make the transformation internal as well as external by having their speech and behavior become more bestial. Perhaps even have them attack each other as they lose their own powers of speech, giving physical expression to their earlier verbal attacks. Of course, all of that might have been difficult to get past the Comics Code Authority. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably the big clincher that you have at the end there, is what they could get away with in the story. Certainly, they could have been more bestial, they could have been more savage, it could have been more horrific. I don't know if the artist Henny Henson could have done that. It, it certainly seemed like this was, the cartoonish style is a little bit more to his taste, but um, with a different artist, but also without the code, who knows what they would have done. Uh, Brian says, I also agree that this story would play out wonderfully in a live-action format, complete with a Raiders of the Lost Ark face melt. Nice. Finally, I'm looking forward to the new quarterly format and hope that it provides a better fit for your current life situation. Still, I hope that you'll be able to make a new episode treasury-sized for Rob's benefit. I am trying to put a lot more story and a lot more content in there, so we'll see. Uh, and the last comment came from Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine Podcasts, including their newest show, One Song Each, which I just love. 
Uh, Frank said, my instincts are always to hard pass on actual artistic expression in podcasts, so I have to suppress that impulse for PJ Frightful, and am then rewarded. Every time I started to question the direction of the story, it would whip away in an unexpected fashion, to my delight. Really great job. You should edit the story into a YouTube clip and parade it around social media. I think it deserves an audience outside graying comics fans. Wow, that is uh, unexpectedly high praise from Frank there. Um, I would love to get some of my original content in front of more eyes, though I'd never thought of putting it on YouTube. That's that's an intriguing possibility. Um, I must confess, my first choice would be to contract some artists and publish my own horror anthology comic with friends from the community. Would that ever happen? I don't know. It's just a dream at this point. Uh, but anyway, next episode. Wow. Uh, there's the bell already. Okay. Well, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, look for the next episode to drop around Christmas time. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.